First, will President Biden's plan to wipe out $400 billion in student debt be allowed to move forward? The U.S. Supreme Court heard oral arguments this morning in two cases challenging the program. In fact, arguments in the second of those cases is still underway. The first comes from six Republican-led states and the second from a couple of borrowers. The Biden administration's plan, announced back in August, would affect 40 million people in the U.S. It aims to forgive up to $20,000 per person. Stephen Schwinn is a professor at UIC Law School, and he joins us to break down what we've been hearing in the nation's high court today. Welcome back, Professor. Susie, thanks so much for having me. Well, first, before we get into the details of these cases, uh, can you please explain what's at stake here? Yeah, so actually quite a lot is at stake here. Up to 50 million borrowers, student aid borrowers, could be forgiven up to $10,000 or $20,000 in their student loan debt. This would amount to a program of almost half a trillion dollars on the part of the United States government. And Susie, that actually turns out to be really important when we look at the merits of the challenge. Yeah. Well, so tell us about these two cases before the Supreme Court today and why the justices decided to take up these specific lawsuits. Sure, you bet. So there are two cases before the court today. One, as you'd mentioned, involves six states who are challenging the Biden administration forgiveness program. The other case is two individuals one of whom actually qualified for some relief, the other who didn't qualify for relief, and they're both complaining that they didn't get full relief under the program. Mm. So they're challenging the Biden administration, arguing that they ought to get full relief under the program. Interesting. Well, uh, as we start to dissect today's arguments, let's take a quick listen to President Biden announcing his student loan forgiveness plan back in August. Using the authority Congress granted the Department of Education, we will forgive $10,000 in outstanding federal student loans. In addition, students who come from low-income families, which allowed them to qualify to receive a Pell Grant, will have their debt reduced $20,000. He says, quote, using the authority that Congress gave the Department of Education What legal argument is the administration standing on? So the argument that the administration is relying on here is that an act called the HEROES Act authorizes the secretary to take this action. The HEROES Act is an emergency act that Congress passed in the wake of the 9-11 attacks that gives broad authority to the government to take certain emergency actions, in this case, to waive or modify federal student loans in the event of a national emergency. Now here, Susie, the emergency is the COVID pandemic. Mm -hmm. And so what the Biden administration is saying is that individuals are affected because of the COVID pandemic. They stand to lose out economically because of the COVID pandemic. And as a result, is a kind of way to remedy or preempt those sorts of uh, harms, we're going to waive these uh, student loan programs. And and just to be clear, the plaintiffs in the first case are those six Republican-led states. And the voice we hear for the defense defending the federal government is U.S. Solicitor General Elizabeth Prelogger. And the first question the Solicitor General had to answer is, is whether the Biden administration had the power to make this decision or if the administration overstepped. Can you explain that a little for us? Absolutely. So the uh, the HEROES Act authorizes the government to waive or modify. Now, those are that's language that's actually from the act, waive or modify programs 
that the federal government runs student loan programs in order so that lenders are no worse off than they would be except for the emergency. And so the Biden administration is saying that it's waiving or modifying its provisions here by granting forgiveness so that borrowers are no worse off than they would be because of the pandemic. Now, what the opponents are saying is that this isn't a waiver or modification at all. It's a completely new program that the Biden administration has created here. And moreover, it's not only not making people worse off, it's actually putting people in a much better position than they would have been but for the program. Now, whether this form of loan forgiveness is a modification or a waiver came up over and over, as you mentioned. What, what's uh, significant about this distinction, and, and what did you take away from this? Yeah, great question. So the opponents of the program are arguing for a really limited interpretation of this language, wave or modify. And what they're saying is wave or modify actually means that you're just kind of tinkering around the edges with the program. But again, what the Biden administration, according to their reckoning, did was to create an entirely new program. And they say the Biden administration doesn't have authority to do that. Or, Susie, more particularly, that the Biden administration doesn't have clear authority to do that in the HEROES Act. Now, that clear part is important because what they're relying on is a, a relatively new doctrine created by the Supreme Court called the Major Questions Doctrine. The Major Questions Doctrine says that if an administrative agency, like in this case the Department of Education, is making a decision that has significant political or economic consequences, they have to rely on clear authority from Congress to do that. Now, we had mentioned earlier, this program could cost the government as much as half a trillion dollars, right? And so the opponents are saying, if anything's significant, that's significant, and the government needs clear authority to do it. Well, Solicitor General uh, Prelogger says loan forgiveness is in the wheelhouse of the Secretary of Education. Do you think she effectively argued that the president acted within powers Congress has already granted to the president? Oh, I think she did a fantastic job at oral argument. She is, uh, I mean, this is her, it's her day job, right? This (laughs) is what she does. And she's very, very good at it. She presented a very sound argument on both the merits question, which we've been talking about, but also the standing part of this that we have not yet talked about. Yeah, and we will get to that in just a moment. This is Reset. I'm Susie Ann. And for Sasha Ann Simons, the Supreme Court is hearing oral arguments today in two cases that will determine whether the Biden administration can, in fact, wipe out $400 billion in student loan debt for about 40 million borrowers in the U.S. UIC law professor Stephen Schwinn is with us breaking down what we've heard so far. Oral arguments are still underway in the second of two cases before the court today. Uh, Now, a a key point in Biden versus Nebraska revolves around something called harm and injury or standing. Can you explain that a little for us? Sure, you bet. So as a general matter, in order to get into federal court, a plaintiff has to show that they've been injured by a defendant's action and that their requested relief from the court would remedy the their harm. Basically, this is to think of it a kind of kind of a ticket to federal court. Mm-hmm. You've got to show that you've been injured. And the claim here is that the states haven't really been injured in the kind of way that the court demands in order to get into federal court. They say they've been injured in these kind of roundabout ways that the court, quite frankly, has never really validated and that they're entitled to come to court to challenge the program based, again, on these kind of roundabout ways. Mm-hmm. And the government is saying, well, no, that's that's cutting new ground here. 
this would be creating entirely new standing doctrine and essentially allow states to challenge all federal regulations based on any kind of harm that they might assert. It would give the states vast authority to challenge federal federal uh, law. Wow. Well, the plaintiffs are arguing the the forgiveness plan would bring economic harm to their states by reducing their tax revenue. Uh, Solicitor General Prelogger disputed that argument. Let's take a listen. We think that the invocation of these harms to tax revenues are so easily answered under this court's precedent. And I would point the court to the Pennsylvania versus New Jersey case. It is on all fours with this one, precisely identical. And so we just think you don't need to go down the road of thinking about um, some of the broader arguments about tax injury in this case, because it's so clear that this court has already rejected the very injury the states are asserting under the Pennsylvania case. Could you break that down for us a little of, of what we just heard? This is a little technical, Susie, so bear with me for a second. <laughs> what the states are arguing here is that their state tax law taxes loan forgiveness as income. Okay, that's the starting yeah. point. But that federal law for a period of time has exempted loan forgiveness from taxation as income. And now finally, that their tax law follows in lockstep federal tax law, and so that their tax law does not treat loan forgiveness as income until 2026, which is when the federal law expires. Now, there are a couple of problems with this. The big one is that states are relying on the taxing power of a third party, the federal government, for their own harm to get into federal court, right? Remember, this is all about standing to get into federal court in the first place. It's crazy, right? That's what Prelogar is saying. This is crazy. It's cutting entirely new ground. And if the Supreme Court validates this theory of standing, it's going to allow states to sue on any basis and challenge any government action. Wow. Well, the state of Nebraska alleged that the loan servicer Mohila is an arm of the government and that the state would be harmed if the loan forgiveness goes through. But the justices scrutinized this, asking why Mohila hadn't sued the federal government itself, why Nebraska was suing, and why Mohila didn't show up. Uh, Here's Justice Amy Coney Barrett. Do you want to address why Mohila's not here? Mohila's not here because the state's asserting its interests. Mohila doesn't need to be here because the state has the authority to speak for them. And that brings me to... Why didn't the state just make Mohila come then? If, if Mohila is really an arm of the state and all of this would be a lot easier, I mean, the Solicitor General conceded that if Mohila was here, Mohila would have standing. If Mohila is an arm of the state, why didn't you just strong arm Mohila and say you've got to pursue this suit? Your Honor, that's a question of state politics, but we believe as a matter of law that the state has the authority to assert its interests. What do you make of this? Well, so we were hearing the attorney. This is an exchange between Justice Amy Coney Barrett and the attorney for the states regarding Mohila's standing, as you had suggested, Susie. And what they're arguing is that Mohila has standing as an arm of the state. Now, what's unusual about this argument is that Mohila is not an arm of the state. Mohila is an independent agency that the state has created and that it's now using to assert harm. And what's doubly weird about this is that Mohila itself has disclaimed any harm to it. The reason that Mohila isn't a part of the case is because Mohila said, we're not harmed by this, and yet the government is trying to leverage Mohila to get its foot in the door in federal court. These arguments, I mean, I think as we're describing them, it's evident how how thin sliced the bologna is here and how unlikely it is that uh, under current court precedent, these cases should even be before the courts. Yeah. Well, let's listen to Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson questioning the long-term effects of acknowledging standing in this case. If we 
look at our standing doctrine in cases like this and we find that, you know, even the most minor state interest, a dormant fund that hasn't been, you know, funded or used by the state in 15 years, if that can be the basis for standing, I guess I'm concerned um, that we're going to have a problem in terms of, of, of the federal government's ability to operate. So my question is, um, is this a legitimate concern and should we th be thinking uh, in cases like this about that type of concern as we uh, uh, ponder whether to expand our standing doctrine? So what is Justice Jackson grappling with there? So as usual, she hits the nail on the head. I love Justice Katanji Brown Jackson. She's such a valuable addition to the court. And she just cuts right to the chase here, as she usually does. What she's saying is exactly what we talked about earlier. Acknowledging Mohila's standing or the state's standing on behalf of Mohila here would just rip a hole in the, the court standing doctrine and allow parties to come into court to assert claims on behalf of third parties all the time. If, if I were injured, Susie, it would allow you to assert an injury based on my injury and just open the federal courts for all kinds of challenges to federal law. Now, again, what I tell my students is that this is just a vast expansion of the existing doctrine. Will the court do it? It very well might. It's hard to tell from oral arguments, but the court very well might rip this hole in its standing doctrine. Well, we mentioned earlier oral arguments in the second case are still ongoing. Um, can you explain what the, the second case is about and, and what the big question is here? Yeah, so the second case is on behalf of these two individuals, one who received $10,000 in relief, but they wanted 20000 the other who received no relief because their loans were all private and not covered by the program, and they want their loans to be forgiven as well. So they sue the administration. Now, here's what's weird about the case. If they win, not only do they not get get benefits, but nobody gets benefits, right? <laughs> and so it's a little hard to unpack exactly what they're arguing. But if we scratch beneath the surface, what we see is that they're saying, look, we were excluded from what's called a notice and comment period. We were excluded from our opportunity to weigh in on this policy before the administration adopted it. And if we had a chance to weigh in, we would have persuaded the administration to cover us, right? Now, that seems pretty tenuous, too. And again, these standing arguments really are just, they're, 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 cutting, they're just cutting a big hole in the court's standing doctrine. And so if the court adopts them, I worry about what that's going to mean for other challenges, yeah. for other kinds of federal laws. But, um, uh, but the, this theory of, of standing, we've got to remember, if they don't have standing, the court's not going to get to the merits. And yeah. so it's quite possible that the court could toss these cases just for lack of standing alone. Well, what happens if the court rules in favor um, of the defense in, in one of these cases, but not both? It depends on how it rules and how it says. I think one likely outcome would be that the court says the individual plaintiffs have no standing. And so we're not even going to touch the merits in that case. But the states do have standing on some theory that the court kind of gins up out of its precedent. If the court says that, then I think the court is primed to rule that the Biden administration violates this major questions doctrine that we talked about earlier, that this is a decision by a federal government agency that has vast economic and political ramifications and that it's not clearly authorized by the HEROES Act. That's Stephen Schwinn, law professor at UIC Law School. Thanks so much for explaining it all for us. Thanks so much, Susie. It's been a real pleasure. 
This is Reset. I'm Susie on in for Sasha Ann Simons. We've been digging into two cases being argued at the Supreme Court today that will decide the future of President Biden's plan to forgive $400 billion in student loan debt. Alyssa Nadwarney, NPR higher education reporter, joins us to help us understand what this means for you and what else the administration is doing to help people with student debt. Alyssa, welcome back. Hi. So nice to be here. So first, does this just mean more limbo for borrowers who are banking on some of their loans being forgiven? Well, yeah, we've got a little bit more waiting to do here. So basically, loans have been on pause. Federal loans have been on pause since the pandemic. So that's going to remain in place until we get a decision from the Supreme Court. Yeah. And if it's, you know, it kind of does... Regardless of what the Supreme Court says, we'll hear what happens to the loan pause after that. So borrowers will know a little bit more this summer. We're expecting that decision sometime in June. So hopefully they'll know a little bit more. I know it's been just talking to borrowers the last several years. It's really been like, uh, wait, wait, oh, my gosh, let's go. Nope, we're still on pause. You know, there's been a lot of back and forth. (laughs) Yeah. Well, what were uh, your takeaways from the oral arguments that you've heard so far? Well, certainly watching that big question of standing. I mean, that's kind of the thing before we even get to any of the meat. As your last guest said, that's kind of the big thing that we're watching. Are these cases even allowed to be heard at the, at the Supreme Court, essentially? Um, and then, yeah, just is, is this power that Biden's using to forgive this debt okay? That's kind of the question. If it, it passes the standing question, then it's like, does Biden have this power? And so I know a lot of borrowers, you know, are watching this very closely. Mm-hmm. Most borrowers I've talked to are like pretty clued in to this argument, which is kind of a wild thing, you know, um, to have so many people just waiting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, definitely tons of borrowers waiting. Uh, let's hear from a guest we had back in the summer when she first heard President Biden make the announcement. Here's Kat. I was absolutely elated. Um, I was out on a walk with my daughter and my husband called me and he said, Biden did it. He did it. He's canceling $10,000 of debt. Um, He's like, don't get your hopes up. Let's see if we qualify. But, um, you know, we came home and read the details of of the plan and um, we should be able to qualify for the forgiveness. And Mm -hmm. um, for us, it makes it makes a huge difference for us. So does this sound like what you've been hearing from folks about the kind of impact having less to pay back? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, you know, a lot of people got those applications in right away this fall. Um, The Biden administration said 16 million people have already been approved. Of course, you know, that's all on hold. You know, nothing's happened yet. Um, But absolutely. I mean, the thing about student loan debt in talking with borrowers is just the stress, you know, that this debt has has made in, in terms of their life and their life's decision. Um, we know so many people have some college and no degree, and so they've got the, the debt, but they don't have mm. that degree yeah. to help them get higher earnings. Um, we know people have degrees that just haven't yielded higher earning jobs, whether they've um, been, um, you know, the, the degree program or, or the college didn't give them what they needed. Or we have programs that just cost a lot of money for jobs that pay not so much. Yeah. And and so, yeah, I, I definitely have talked to borrowers who are feeling that excitement and kind of the then, all right, let's do this, <laughs> that, that that listener called in about. Yeah. Well, here's here's a little more from Kat. 
Like many borrowers, I did not have subsidized loans, so they're racking up interest. And during the pandemic, during the payment pause, I was able to pay down some of my principal. Um, and actually, instead of seeing my loan balance grow, I was able to see it decrease, which was really satisfying. And with this $10,000 um, loan forgiveness, the finish line is in sight. So t- tiny benefit there. Uh, remind us how this loan forgiveness is, is supposed to work. Yeah, so so the plan is to forgive up to ten up to people who have loans up to ten thousand dollars or twenty thousand dollars who qualify for Pell, which is um, you know borrowers who qualify for low income Pell grants. So this is a money from the government that you don't have to pay back, but it's kind of used in this case um, to indicate that the borrow is borrower is low income. Um, one thing I wanted to just say about that tape about this payment pause, it is worth mentioning that. A lot of folks have had a bit of a grace period for really an unprecedented amount of time. I mean, having paused payments. So again, this is like you don't make payments or you don't have to make payments. You don't gain any interest. Interest is set to zero. And those payments count for other programs like public service loan forgiveness. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is separate from kind of what's, what's in front of the Supreme Court. This is really historical and, yeah. and unprecedented for borrowers. Yeah, for sure. Well, uh, of course, we, we had a number of, of folks uh, leave voicemails uh, about this. Um, here's Yvonne in South Shore. The cancellation would help me tremendously. I hope that the Supreme Court will allow it. And that would, would not only help me, but it would help um, my grandchildren and my children. I mean, she went on to say that her grandchild would have um, her grandchildren would have their loans completely wiped out if this plan mm. goes through. And talk about the generational effect this yeah. could have. I mean, there are some people saying it could help close the large racial wealth gap in this country. Yes, absolutely. There has been a ton of research over the last year or so since this became kind of part of the national conversation that does show that loan forgiveness has the potential to really kind of move move the meter on these gaps that persist in, um, in these wealth gaps that per- persist racially in America. So I have also heard that that this generational kind of um, this generational fix would be really helpful. I mean, one thing that's really wild about that that we do here is that this bucket isn't just students. I mean, the students, folks who have student debt is, includes lots of generations, including older folks, someone who would be a grandmother. Um, and I think, yeah, that, that really has the, the potential to, that really has the potential to make some serious you know, changes for people's lives. I do also want to point out, though, that the Biden administration has forgiven debt for a lot of people, even separate, you know, from this 10,000, yeah. 20,000 potential plan. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and um, and I want to just um, I would also like to, you know, I guess moving on a little bit here, the plan we, we've been discussing is uh, the most overarching debt forgiveness plan. Um, and, and as you mentioned, there are other um, uh, plans that have gone through. It's also something no president has done before, but it's not the only thing the, the Biden administration is doing. Um, you know, what debt has been forgiven so far? Yeah, that's a great question. So. You're absolutely right. Biden has now canceled more student loan debt than any president in U.S. history. Um, there's three 
big buckets of stuff that they've already canceled. And the first bucket is for people who have been defrauded by their colleges. So an example is people who attended Corinthian colleges, which Mm, operated for about 20 years. So that bucket of loans has been forgiven. Um, The second is the public service loan forgiveness program. So this is the thing that's been around since President Obama. This is for people who work in public service. Um, But for a long time, very few people received the forgiveness. There was a lot of red tape. There was confusing paperwork. And so the Biden administration has really made it a priority to streamline that program, and they've offered waivers during the pandemic. So that's a big bucket of folks that have already for, you know, been forgiven during this administration. So we're talking billions of dollars forgiven for PSLF. And then that third bucket is people who are permanently disabled. Mm. So under federal law, student loan borrowers who are totally or permanently disabled or who have disabilities that limit their ability to work, Federal student loans under the law should be discharged, but for a long time, that didn't happen. Administrative hurdles prevented it. Yeah. And so in 2021, the Biden administration said, hey, we're going to deal with this. And so they automatically canceled loan debt for about 400,000 borrowers. Wow. Um, and so they also uh, tweaked the program a bit that it's going to make it easier in the future if people are permanently disabled that their loans will, will be forgiven. This is Reset. I'm Susie on in for Sasha Ann Simons. We're talking about the future of student loan forgiveness in light of the Supreme Court hearing oral arguments on two key cases on the topic this morning. We're speaking with Alyssa Nadwarni, higher education reporter for NPR. Alyssa, I mean, we've heard a, a lot of how this would help people. What resistance to debt forgiveness have you heard? Well, there are a lot of arguments out there. Um, I will draw your attention to two. Um, One thing I've heard a lot in my reporting is that student loan forgiveness doesn't address the cause of all this. Mm. So the cost of college is still so high for so many families. And and the need to borrow, this kind of pressure to borrow, and honestly to borrow a lot, is still there. And so while forgiveness would help you know, the current 40 million or so folks with debt, there's still about 2 million students who start college for the first time every year. Yeah. And so cancellation, it doesn't change the system enough. You know, that's kind of what, what that one bucket of resistance is. And then, of course, we hear the arguments of, um, you know, these are folks who have degrees and, like, shouldn't shouldn't be, be given forgiveness. And there's been a lot of economic arguments that kind of have debunked that a little bit and showed that Biden's program really is targeted at those little low and, and middle income folks. Yeah. And, and I mean, that's right. The debt forgiveness does not do anything to address the cost of higher education mm-hmm. for future students. Um, one of President Biden's campaign promises was for free public education. Where are we on that? Yeah. Well, you know, free, free college is still a really fascinating and active movement in the U.S. So you're absolutely right. He had this plan to make um, community colleges, those are two-year public colleges, free. Um, That plan did not pass Congress. Um, But at the state level, we have a lot of successes Mm -hmm. in the arena of free college. So, and, And it's states that you might be surprised about. I mean, it's a very purple issue. So Tennessee is a great example. Mm-hmm. They have public community colleges for free. Um, there are lots of kind of local state um, community programs that aim to do this. 
And, you know, this is kind of tied, Biden mentioned this in, in his State of the Union address, this is tied to making uh, people in America able to access jobs. I mean, this is job training. This is economics issues. And, of course, as you said, it's, con it's connected to how much debt students have to take out in order to get an education. Yeah. Well, if the Supreme Court rules this plan unconstitutional, the administration does have uh, a, a, any other um, avenues to pursue. Let, let's start with uh, revisions to the repay plan, which is income contingent for people borrowing for undergrad. What's different about this and the current income-based repayment plans? Yeah, that's absolutely right. So the Department of Education is in the process of overhauling this income-driven repayment Um about a third of borrowers already use these plans. As you said, they're like, they essentially make student loans more manageable because you're able to set your monthly payment based on your income. So they are in the process of remodeling, streamlining this program. So it was, it included many programs. They're kind of streamlining it into one. Um, and the idea is that it's going to lower monthly payments for millions of borrowers. So one big thing is the income thresholds are going to grow. So if you make about $30,000, that income is going to be protected. Mm -hmm. Anything over that, you'll pay you know, a monthly percentage for, for, your, for your loan payments. And I've seen some calculations that it could cut monthly payments by half or, or more. Wow. So that IDR is that the, kind of the... The remodeling of the IDR program is, is a really big deal. Um, I also wanted to mention, if there's time, mm -hmm. uh, that the Biden administration also did this thing over the summer that didn't get a lot of press, but they announced that they would essentially be resetting the clock on more than 7 million borrowers who had defaulted on their student loans. Mm -hmm. So people who are in default, those are arguably the folks who are hurting the most from the burden of student debt. So when you're in default, you have severe consequences like um, the government can take your tax refunds, they can take part of your Social Security checks or your wages, long-lasting impacts. And so this reset that they announced last summer, that's going to take all these borrowers out of default and hopefully get those folks into income-based repayment plans, which they are kind of remodeling and streamlining. Yeah. Well, it's all a wait and see. We will be keeping an eye on that. I'm sure we will be talking to you again. That's Alyssa Natawarni, NPR higher education reporter. Thanks so much, Alyssa. Thanks, Susie.